0: Welcome to Awaken Podcast. I hope you enjoy the teaching. Awesome. Beautiful singing this morning. Awesome worship, Mike. Thank you for the kind words. How's everybody doing? Good. Just in case you're wondering, this is a Nintendo controller on my shirt for those of you who are old enough or young enough to know what the Nintendo is. And I did, in the mirror this morning, do a little up, up, down, down, left, right, left, right, B, A, select, start, for those of you who know that. And if you don't know, well, then you don't know, and we'll forget about it and move on to Esther. (laughs) So continuing our series um, in the book of Esther, the uh, series entitled uh, All of the Above. It's kind of a a catch-all. It's kind of we're just talking about all these different topics. And what I am absolutely loving about just spending some time in the book as uh, we prepare to teach this morning is that it's like walking into a carnival and just seeing all sorts of crazy things that you don't see in, uh, in real life. People on stilts, there's mimes, there's clowns, there's just, it's just a crazy atmosphere. And, and walking in there and trying to teach something out of this can be a little intimidating because there's just so much going on. It's hard to like, should I go into the Hall of Mirrors? Should I go talk to that bearded lady? or? Micah the pastor with, you know, the sweet little cufflinks. I don't know. It's, it's this book of hidden things, truly. And whoever wrote the book, I just have to tell you, is absolutely this literary genius, plain and simple. Um, they were so aware of the ways in which uh, the God of Israel was moving in the history of the people, and they were not afraid to be playful with the story and, and communicate what God is doing in these subtle ways sometimes. One of my the favorite things, the coolest things that I've learned... Um, is about Esther's name, and we miss this as English speakers because we don't know Hebrew, we don't know Persian, but Esther's name in Hebrew is actually Hadassah. And so Esther is her Persian name. Um, It's it's a name given to her as as an exile in a different land. A Hebrew speaker, when they hear the name Esther, which in Persian means star, they would hear one of two things. They would either hear it to be the word or the phrase, she searches out evil, which is kind of cool. But they would also hear it to be this. I am a hiding place. And now, this is particularly interesting for two reasons. Because when God tells his, God's name to Moses in Exodus 3, God says, eye, asher, eye, Which is just a Hebrew phrase. that means I am who I am. Or I will be who I will be. It's the first person parsing of the verb to be. So Esther's name actually contains hidden in it, the presence of God. Even though God is not explicitly mentioned throughout the book, it's like the author is saying, if you pay attention, you can see the presence of the hidden God in this courageous Jewish orphan exile queen of Persia. It's just its brilliant. It's just so fun. So what we're going to do this week... <clears throat> We're just going to pick up on a thread that uh, we'll pick up where Micah left off, and just follow this one thread to the end of the story, and it's going to just allow us to see one of the more overt and obvious themes of the book. If you've read the book, you'll know this theme. Uh, we're going to, you know, notice the theme of vengeance or revenge that the uh, Jews take on their enemies, and that's what Purim is all about. So that'll be very clear. Um, but then what we're going to do is we're going to notice in the in the text there's actually this hidden clue that points us backwards into the story of the Israelites and um, it's going to um, point us to this other story that's going to allow us to see this very present but very hidden theme in the book and then what's going to happen is we're going to notice that this hidden theme which we'll get to in a few minutes when we hold it up next to this theme of revenge or vengeance these two competing themes, which are one is very obvious and over, this one's very subtle, they could not be more at odds with each other. It's like one is wearing a Packer jersey and one's wearing a Vikings jersey or a Badger and a Gopher jersey. I just say that because I watched the Gophers get killed by the Badgers yesterday. I'm a little bit sore about that anyway. But the Vikings are going to win tomorrow night, right? Okay, anyway, <clears throat> back at the cross. Okay. Um, So then we're going to see these two themes in competition with one another, and then uh, we're going to have to look uh, to a different place to find out how the um, tension is to be resolved, and they will stand in tension with each other. And the author is just giving us this brilliant and beautiful and subtle and playful invitation to come into the text and just to play around, to have fun with it, to follow it to unexpected places. And So here's what I think the book of Esther is doing right here, if you can put up the first slide. The book of Esther is an invitation to explore what it means to be a community of people following after the living God who is often conspicuously absent. Amidst a sea of competing values, some of which we are well aware, and many of which exist just beneath the surface of reality. So let's pray as we dive in. Jesus, my prayer this morning is not that you would show up. It's not that you would, you know, be here in a new way, God, but We know that you already are here, so I pray that you'd make us aware of your presence where we maybe haven't noticed it before. My prayer, God, is that even in the book of Esther, you would speak to us where you are absent, and Jesus, uh, this morning, we would have a more full, a more beautiful, a more true glimpse of the kind of God you are and the kind of people and church you're calling us to be in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So, Esther, we're just going to follow off where, uh, pick up where Micah left off last week. Remember where... uh, Mike was talking about this, um, Esther's dramatic phrase, if I perish, I perish. You know, she has this amazing moment where Mordecai comes to her and informs her of this plot to annihilate the Jews, and she has this, you know, sacred future moment where she sees everything that's come before her, and she sees where God is calling her to be, and it's in this moment she, you know, lets go of her false identity and grabs onto a truer version of who she is, and a very dramatic, uh, you know, show of courage, and she just, you know, stands up and says, you know, if I perish, I perish. I'm going for it. I'm going to talk to the king. And it's it's very beautiful and a very cool part of the story. Um, so what she does then is she goes to the king and throws some banquets probably to get him a little, you know, put him in a good mood, put him in a good place so she can ask her request to um, save her people. But she's got, you know, butter the king up a little bit. So the king's like, okay, I'll give you half of the kingdom. What do you want? She's like, well, let's do another banquet just to make sure you're really lubed up here and you're going to listen to what I say. So Um, finally, after a few banquets, and Esther, you know, has the king right where she wants him, she goes, okay, I have to tell you something, king, you remember that uh, people group that you're going to exterminate at the end of the year, well, I have to tell you something, I'm one of them, I am a Jew, and I know you offered me the whole kingdom, all I want is this, grant me my life, and save my people from annihilation, and the king is like, well, yeah, I'm gonna do that. You're the queen, and whoever plotted this plot is going down. Um, obviously, I'm gonna give you. And it was Haman, you know, the ager guy, the guy who's the anti-Jewish figure in the book. It's like you can you can have his whole estate, his whole house. It's all yours. In fact, um, we we know that Haman was plotting to kill Mordecai, Esther's um, adopted uncle, and so Haman ends up dying. He gets killed. He's executed. Um, this makes the king quite happy, um, but we're still left with the problem of the Jews facing annihilation at the end of the calendar year. And uh, so the king's like, well, obviously I can't rescind my previous edict because I'm so powerful that I set something in stone that can't be uh, revoked, which is should make you wonder a little bit about the king's power or what he was really doing there, but that's another message for another time. So the king actually has Esther and Mordecai draw up a new edict. An edict is just like this royal decree, just kind of a fancy word for that. And here's what this new edict says. It gives the Jews permission to assemble and to defend their lives, to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate the entire army of any people or province which might attack them, including women and children. Now, if you're reading in the NIV or the TINIV in Esther 8:11. You're probably going to notice that the phrase at the end where in the NASB or literally in the Hebrew it says including women and children. Most English translations are going to soften that. So they're going to make you think that uh, the Jews are protecting their women and children. But that's not the case. The edict uh, written by Mordecai and Esther and, and stamped with the king's approval is to absolutely annihilate their enemies, including their women and children. And any translation that softens that is doing you an injustice because that's an important part of, uh, of the story. So we know a few months later that the, um, on this one day that the Jews have permission to take up arms and to protect themselves. Their enemies do come at them and they attack. And on one day they kill 500, um, they, just, of, just 500 men, but it says they don't take their plunder, they don't take their treasure, their booty, if you will. I just like to say that. And then the next day they actually kill 75,000 Persian men. Uh, as they're attacked, attacking and they don't take their treasure or whatever. But that's, um, that's a lot of people, just men that died. Surely there were more women and children along with that. Haman's sons, the guy who plotted to kill the Jews in the first place, all ten of his sons are actually impaled upon these poles like Haman was. Um, you can do without what you will. So the Jews are—they triumph. They're saved. Esther's courageous action of going to the king—it turns out well. The Jews are delivered from their enemies. Uh, Purim is established. This this feast, this great party that they have every year for three days, to commemorate the relief that the, the people found from their enemies, and it's a celebration that is still going on to this day. And it's essentially just—it's a remembrance that uh, that Esther's courage uh, that delivered us from annihilation. And they give gifts to one another, they give gifts to the poor, and it's this party, just this remembrance that their sorrow is uh, turned to joy and their mourning, the celebration. So, just what it's essentially about, Purim, the book of Esther, just on this really. Obvious level is that it's about this great reversal of the fortunes of the Jews and the individual characters where Mordecai and Esther both rise to power as these uh, Jewish exiles in a faraway land. Haman is the right hand man. He's going to kill Mordecai, but he ends up getting killed, and it's just like it's, it's this great reversal. It's, it's this revenge, it's this taking over of, the, of a position of prominence for the Jewish peoples. Um, it's, uh, and, and yes, the, the victory of the Jewish people is portrayed as self defense true. They weren't out there, you know, uh, doing preemptive attacks on the Persians. They were protecting themselves. But it's pretty clear that this celebration is all about celebrating a military victory. It's celebrating the death of over 75,000 Persian folks. Um, and yeah, that I mean, that's, that's essentially what it's about. We have to see that theme of vengeance running throughout the uh, narrative. So with all that being said, just as by introduction. We could go one of two ways now in the sermon. We could go um, and just, uh, you know, talk about how God is always faithful to deliver victory for the people, and he'll never let them face annihilation, and it'd be this yay, yay, rah, rah message, which would be very appropriate for Veterans Day and You know, it'd be fantastic, and we could definitely talk about that. Or we could just immediately take this vengeance theme that's very present on the surface, and we could go talk about Jesus' ethic for nonviolence and enemy love and all that stuff. And I think we're actually going to do the second one. But first, before we jump ahead to Jesus, we have to go back a little bit in the story to see why... This is such a a strange theme that rises to the top of the book given what else is going on just below the surface. I said there's one really important clue that I want us to pay attention to and it's this. Remember that in the Hebrew version of the text God's name is not mentioned specifically and there are no allusions to other Old Testament figures like Moses isn't mentioned, David, none of that. But there are six phrases in the book in the first four chapters that are direct Quotations almost verbatim from the book of Genesis and all of those quotations happen to be from the Joseph story. Now, I'm going to say that this is not an accident. Whoever is writing this book is, is putting this just kind of big like, you know, arrow saying, hey, something else is going on here I want you to pay attention to. Now, we should ask, why is the author of the book doing that? Why do they want us to pay attention to Joseph? There's two things we could say about that. First, for a Jewish reader, they're going to notice the um, storyline parallels between the Joseph story and the Esther story, even if those six uh, verbatim uh, quotes weren't there. We know that Joseph, like Esther, was a foreigner in a, in a land who rose to a position of power and used that power to save the people from famine and all that stuff so that that's like Esther you know foreign blah blah it's the same plot line and even if those six uh, passages weren't the same or the same phrases in them the, a Jewish reader would have not miss that. Those don't help. I mean, it's such an obvious parallel. So there has to be something else going on where the the author would quote the Joseph story six times. And I think this is what the author is doing. I think the author is saying, yes, you can see that the plot lines of uh, Joseph and Esther are similar. But what you may not realize is that the same thing is going on in Esther that was going on in the Joseph story. The central theme of the Joseph story is in fact the central theme of the Esther story as well, but it takes place just below the surface and ju- it remains just out of our view until we know to look for it. So, that I know will raise the question of what is the Joseph story all about? Very quickly, here's what the Joseph story is all about. First of all, it is one of the most foundational stories in the Old Testament, in the Torah. It connects the, uh, the Genesis account with Abraham and his descendants with the Exodus. Um, it tells us where the tribes come from. It's just a fundamental uh, part of this, part of the story. And here's what happens in the actual Joseph story itself. We know that um, Joseph's father, Israel, loved him more than all of his brothers for reasons that aren't important now. And his brothers were not happy with him, and I know what that's like to be a son who, and I have seven younger brothers, and Sometimes we didn't always get along. And I know what that's like to be the favorite child, you know, so I can kind of feel Joseph a little bit. At one point, his, his brothers are tending the flocks out in Shechem, which is far away from where he was. And uh, his, his, his dad says to him, I'm going to send you out to see to the well-being of your brothers. And jo- uh, Israel, in doing this, knows that he's sending... Uh, his son Joseph, into a hornet's nest. He knows that it's going to be full of conflict and it's not going to end well for his son. Nonetheless, he knows that his son has the one chance to see to the well-being of his very angry and hate-filled brothers. And we know what happens to Joseph. He is thrown in prison. It's, it's not a good run for him for a little while. It, it ends up quite poorly, um, then when he gets out, he actually goes to seek out, to look for his brothers, to, to let them know that they're forgiven. And he kind of messes with them a little bit, and it's, it's kind of a fun, playful thing. Here, there's something really interesting going on here in the Hebrew version of Genesis 37, 14, and 15, where, where Israel says to Joseph, go see to the wellness of your brothers. The word wellness is actually the Hebrew word shalom, which all of us know very well, and it means something like peace. Or more accurately, not just an absence of war, but a sense of wholeness, a sense of completeness, a a total well-being, harmony between um, different things. So Israel says to his son Joseph, Go see to the completeness of your brothers. Go see to their well-being. Go see to the harmony in that relationship. And that, in and of itself, may not illuminate why that's such an important part of the narrative, especially as it concerns the Esther story, unless we go back even further into the story, back to Genesis 4, which is the first story of brothers in little Bible trivia time. Who was that, everyone? Cain and Abel. Thank you. Bible points for you, sir. Um, Cain, we know the story. It's kind of familiar. Uh, Cain has some conflict with his brother Abel because God preferred Abel's offering to Cain's offering. So, you know, Cain does what most brothers do. He kills his brother. Just kidding. That's a little over the top. And then God comes to Cain and like, where is your brother? And Cain's response is, is quite important and interesting for a few different reasons. This is what Cain says. I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? We've all probably heard that phrase before. And it's, once again, it's very interesting in the Hebrew. And here's what um, uh, is going on. The word for keeper is the word shamar. Say it with me. Shamar. And based on what we just said about a minute ago, shamar sounds like what word? Shalom. shalom. Shamar is very related to the word shalom, so it has this sense of, um, of peace, of wholeness. It's the same root word in the Hebrew. So Cain is saying this to God in response to the question, where's your brother? He's saying, is my brother's shalom my responsibility? is his well-being my concern? With the implied answer that, no, I don't care about my brother's well-being. That's not my concern. So if we want to know what's happening in the Joseph story, where he is going out intentionally to see to the shalom of his brothers, we have to understand that Cain, the first brother, did not see to the shalom of his brother. So Esther and Joseph are these reversals of the Cain story. Joseph, in particular, is the reversal of the Cain story, where he goes out to see to the shalom of his brothers. And that theme, which pervades the entire story, I want to submit to you is running just underneath the surface of the Esther narrative. And we see this when we realize that uh, Mordecai calls Esther to go to see to the shalom of her brothers and sisters at the um, danger of her own life. And that's what she does. It never explicitly mentions that. But that is essentially what is going on. And now, if we hold up the main obvious theme of the Jews getting vengeance over their people, revenge and military victory, and we hold it up next to this idea of um, seeing to the shalom of one's brothers and sisters, now we have a problem. Right? Because these are very different. Purim celebrates the revenge and the, uh, the victory they have over their enemies. And what's really going on is a concern for the shalom of brothers and sisters at the same time. And I submit to you that we cannot hold those two in any way but in um, conflict. Um, and that's what the, uh, the author is doing in a very fun, playful way, is inviting us into this tension as we hold vengeance and sing to the shalom of our brothers and sisters together. you guys with me still, so far? Awesome. All right, so what in the world do we do with that? Well, I think we need to say a few things. Um, The salvation for the Jews is to be celebrated. Absolutely. It's to be commemorated. And the only thing you can call being delivered from genocide is salvation. And if God, you know, we were to awaken, was like marked for genocide at the end of the year and God delivered us somehow, we'd, we'd probably celebrate that. And that's a good thing we shouldn't you know, downplay that. But we have to remember that the cost of their salvation comes at um, the cost of over 75,000 Persian lives. Women and children in that as well. Um, Yes, the Persians were great enemies of the Jews, and it's true that elsewhere in the Old Testament we see Yahweh, the God of Israel, apparently condoning violence in some situations. But I still hope that this idea of celebrating violence in the face of wanting to see to the shalom of our neighbor should cause some... uh, cognitive dissonance, if you will, um, in our in our minds. And now here, let me kind of take this home a little bit. It reminds me of this uh, this spring, in May, when um, Osama bin Laden's death was broadcast on the news. I remember being in a tavern on France, having some dinner with some friends, and all of a sudden, everyone, the sports games turn off, and it's like news of Osama's death is um, on the news, and ev- like people were celebrating in this restaurant, and it was... It was like this occasion, like this festive occasion, you know, like the twins that just won the World Series or something unlikely like that. I mean, it was this crazy. And so I remember, like, going home and, you know, going on Twitter and Facebook, and and it was so interesting to see everyone's reaction to the death of Osama bin Laden. Um, And I have to confess to you, I was so surprised by how many of my Friends who love Jesus and are committed to the way of Jesus were glorying in the death of an American national enemy. Now, let me say this. I have two younger brothers who have spent a total of three years in Iraq and Afghanistan. My number seven brother is in three weeks going to Afghanistan for his first tour of duty, and I know that Osama bin Laden's death makes my brothers a lot safer, all right? So as an American, as a big brother... I rejoice at the death of a horrible enemy of America. If what everything we know about Osama bin Laden is true, we have reason to rejoice and to be thankful that the dude is dead because, by all accounts, he did some pretty horrible things. But as a Christian, as one who's attempting to follow the way of Jesus, my primary allegiance is not to the concerns of America. It's just not. My primary allegiance is not to this nation, to the economy. to um, to anything like that. It's to the kingdom of God. And all these other ways of identifying myself come underneath that. And I would say that's true for all of us as Christians. And what's happening then in, in that conflict is we are exiles. We are citizens of a different kingdom living as exiles in this different land. And often those values of each of those kingdoms are going to come into conflict. That's what's going on in Esther. That's what's going on when Christians celebrate the death of Osama bin Laden or other American enemies. They're two different value systems bumping into each other and causing quite a bit of conflict. And if we just pay attention to what Jesus says, we have a way out of the conundrum. In Luke um, 6, 27, and 28, Jesus says this, But to you who are listening... I think he says that at the beginning because this is hard to hear. To you who are listening, I say, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you. I mean, that's hard to hear because it's backwards. Compare that to Esther 9.5, which says um, something like, the Jews, um, let me see if I can find it really quickly. Uh, it says, um, let's see, I know The Jews struck down all their enemies with a sword, killing them and destroying them, and they did what they pleased to those who hated them. How different is that than loving your enemies and doing good to those who hate you? To doing what you please to those who hate you, to loving those who hate you. How different are those value systems? How absolutely tense is that situation? Um, Man, and, and the point is not all the ethical the sticky situations that that ethic will bring us into. But the point is this. The gospel itself is a commitment to love our enemies and to extend forgiveness and not seek out vengeance. Can I get an amen this morning in the joke joint? This is what God does for us. Romans 5, Paul says this. if we, For if while we were still God's enemies, we were reconciled through the death of his son, um, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his faith? God approaches us, and, well, we think we're enemies of God and brings us in, shows us grace and not vengeance. That's the fundamental theme of what the gospel is all about, which turns upside down this idea of of violence and uh, redemptive violence and revenge and going after your enemy and giving them what they deserve. The gospel turns it upside down. Vengeance for us simply cannot be an option if we identify ourselves as followers of Jesus. I can't put it any more simple than that. Remember, as Jesus was being nailed to the cross, he says, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. Holy cow. When my drive-thru lady doesn't give me my food fast enough, I want to nail her to a cross. It's like that's the opposite of my intuitive way of acting is to seek revenge, is to be angry. But man, there's something so different going on here in the gospel. But Paul calls the logic of the cross in 1 Corinthians 1, calls it foolishness. It's absolutely foolishness that a display of weakness and a display of non-violence and non-revenge could overturn this violent, corrupt system. He said it's foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those of us who are being saved, we will know that is the wisdom of God. And so we, we can ask the question, yes, doesn't God condone violence in the Old Testament? Doesn't a verse like Genesis 9-6, which says... Um, uh, Whoever sheds human blood by human beings shall um, their blood be shed, for in the image of God has God made humankind. It's true that there's violent themes all throughout the Old Testament. Moses accidentally killed a dude. David killed a guy so he could sleep with a dude's wife. That is all throughout the Old Testament. And we could even, uh, what about Hitler? What do we do when the world is confronted with such a great evil? And I'll just say this really quickly. Um, Hitler was emboldened by a failed assassination attempt on his life. And Dietrich Bonhoeffer, this great uh, Lutheran German pastor, was central to that. And um, they planted a bomb in this meeting. If you've seen the Tom Cruise movie, it's kind of what's going on there. And the, the assassination attempt failed. And this, that violence, instead of ending the situation, actually made it a lot worse. And it emboldened Hitler as he went out and took over Poland and Russia and whatever else. The, the, the point is this, violence cannot end violence. Revenge will not take you out of the cycle of of violence. It's that simple. There has to be another way out. And let me also say this, just as we're wrapping up here. This does not mean we're passive about evil. This does not mean we just let evil happen. The cross of Jesus Christ is not passive. It's an active rebellion against corrupt political rulers. It's an active rebellion against selfish human motives but it's an act of rebellion that takes place in a completely counterintuitive, non-violent way. I think of the cross as this act of divine judo where judo is this martial art that is all about taking the force of a would-be attacker and using it against them. So if Micah were to suddenly, not like what I'm preaching, and to charge me, instead of giving him my right Scottish hook, I would just step to the side and flip him right through this like judo fence right here. I would use his energy against him, and I would somehow turn it uh, and, and use it to my advantage. That's what the cross is. It's an active use of violent evil that's coming here that Jesus then takes and in this judo maneuver, turns it upside down, and exposes the absurdity of violence and evil by putting on display weakness, and it's counterintuitive, but it is the way of the cross. It is what the gospel is calling us to. Um, it is about seeing to the shalom of our brothers and sisters in our enemies in a way that will often not make sense in the eyes of the world. The criteria for Jesus, judo, if you will, <laughs> kind of like that phrase, I like um, is that if it looks and smells and tastes and appears like Calvary, that's it. Does, it, does, does our action, does our behavior, does the way we're um, living look like what Jesus was doing? Does it look like Father, forgive them? Does it look like God sending his son to die. Does it look like that? If not, it's, it's not of the kingdom. It's something else. It might be dressed up in nice Christian language and Christian appearances, but if it does not have that flavor of the cross and Calvary, it is something else. That doesn't mean we have to try really hard to act like Jesus, but rather we get to enter into the process of becoming like Jesus and thus become the kind of people, the kind of community together who do this thing naturally. It's not about trying really hard. It's about experiencing transformation. So two takeaways as we leave and as we wrap up. And it's this. And this could indeed be the takeaway of every sermon, but it is especially for this one, is that Jesus leaves no ambiguity about the character of God. It's that simple. Where the author of Esther invites us to dwell in the ambiguity of competing values of uh, vengeance and shalom, Um, Jesus leaves absolutely no ambiguity about the values of God and the character and the heart of God. Uh, The truth is, if we want to know what God is really like, Esther certainly exposes a lot of that. But if we really want to know, we have to look at Jesus. If we want to know what breaks God's heart, what makes God angry, what God desires justice for, if we want to know God's posture towards us, if we want to know what humanity is supposed to look like, if we want to know what humanity is going to look like when all things are made new, we look at Jesus. Three verses to point to that really quickly. John 14, 9, Philip says, Jesus, or God, uh, show us the Father. Jesus says, Philip, don't you know that you've been with me all the time? If you want to see the Father, look at me. For when you see me, you see the Father. The author of Hebrews says this, the Son, referring to Jesus, is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of God's being. Paul in Colossians 1 says, the Son, obviously Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. If we want to know what God is like, we look at Jesus. If we want to know how to resolve this tension of this apparently uh, war condoning and violence condoning God of the Old Testament, we look at Jesus. Because Jesus unveils something very old about who God is and who God has always been, but in a new way. Jesus brings into focus, if you will, the character of God that has always been there and been present in stories like Joseph and Esther but it's brought into light in a new way. And for those of us who say I am a Christian or I'm becoming or I'm trying to become a Christian, this has to be our north star. This has to be the center. This has to be what we are all about. Um, Everything we discover about God will be true and consistent with Jesus, and everything that Jesus shows us is consistent with who God is. That is my central conviction as a Christian. And we're going to find things in the Bible. We're going to find things that our pastors sometimes say. We're going to find things on TV and in Christian books that compete with this. But the truth is, only the character of Jesus, as revealed through the Spirit and the Scriptures, reveal the character of God, nothing else. It is the fullest possible embodiment of who the living God is. So I'm going to bring the band up. We're going to do one more tune, I believe. And I just want to say, as we're we're finishing up here, that we have to first hold these things in attention. This desire for vengeance and national victory, and yes, that God would vanquish our enemies, but also hold that with the idea that our main marching order is the main thing that God is calling us to, is to see to the shalom of our brothers and sisters, often at our own cost. But the good news is, friends, is we get to do this together as a community as a church and that it is the spirit of the living God that moves in us and enables us to do that not our own efforts Find us online at www.awakencommunity.com or on Facebook at www.facebook.com Backslash awaken community. Or want to an awaken community. See you Thank next you. time.